Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Shaparo, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very special episode of the show for you today. We're joined by Aaron Kaplan, founder and co-CEO at Prometheum. Sir, thanks so much for taking the time to join the program. Uh, we've, we've referenced the firm previously in other shows. I think I mistakenly uh, once referred to it as Prometheus, so apologies in advance for that. Um, let's let's start with a brief background on how the firm was conceived and 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 maybe how you specifically got involved in digital assets. Sure. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here, Frank. Uh, so uh, way back in 2013, when uh, Bitcoin was just gaining popularity, um, we examined it as I'm a securities attorney by trade, and I examined it as a financial instrument. And the thought process was is that there needed to be frameworks to allow for uh, this asset class, the industry to grow. I mean, this is Bitcoin, it's right at the time of, uh, it's before the Ethereum ICO. Mm -hmm. uh, and essentially the thought process was as well, if we're able to trade Bitcoin through an ATS and a brokerage account and give the investor protections and the consumer protections of the federal securities laws, uh, that it would be a way forward that made a lot of sense. So in April, 2014, we submitted our first no action letter to the SEC. Uh, basically basically asking them to not take action against us should we trade Bitcoin uh, on an ATS in a brokerage account. Um, the time we were a little bed bug, but then um, I continued to focus my practice as a securities attorney on the application of distributed ledger technology to the securities industry and really the related regulatory issues. Uh, and when the Dow report, or let me take a step back, but it was always our thesis that essentially the federal securities laws provided a great framework to regulate the intermediaries, the trading, the custody activity related to uh, Bitcoin and then digital assets. Uh, and then when the Dow report came out in July 2017, which was really the first time that the SEC gave an indication that the federal securities laws applied to digital assets, uh, that was the catalyst we needed to start the company. I think we started the company a couple months thereafter. Uh, and the goal of the company was to build a public market and custodial infrastructure uh, under the federal securities laws for digital assets. And what that entails is a trading venue where you could publicly trade digital assets and a custodial venue where basically you could custody your assets all with the consumer and investor protections of the federal securities laws. Yeah, under, understood. And I think for for context for folks, um, that, that sort of Dow report um, could be something that when industry or market participants wax on poetic about uh, the lack of clarity, a lot of people would point to that and say, there's, there's your clarity. When we think about um, maybe the way digital assets could trade on ATS versus the way in which they trade today, how would you um, unpack uh, the differences between them? What, 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 sort of, um, what sort of parameters are in place uh, with an ATS versus um, maybe a platform like a Coinbase or Kraken? So uh, when we look at virtual currency exchanges, they're generally licensed in the United States as money transmitters under the money transmitter licensure regime. Uh, and that is arguably the same licenses that Western Union and MoneyGram have. They're really the money, money, the remittance type licenses. Uh, and I'm not sure they were intended to basically allow for governance and oversight of active trading with financial instruments similar to how equities operate. Uh, but when you have an ATS that's licensed under the securities laws, uh, you have rules and frameworks that you have to follow, which basically ensure that 
there's fair and orderly markets, that there's basically uh, no manipulative trading practices, and basically you have ongoing reporting and oversight with uh, the SEC and FINRA. So basically there's rules and standards you have to, fo- have to follow that have been established really over uh, since the 33 Act, so you know 90 plus years or 90 years. Uh, and then there's also basically ongoing oversight and reporting mechanisms, which ensure that your customers are properly protected and the markets are fair and orderly. So I think it's just a more heightened level of responsibility to your customers to provide those investor protections uh, and also the fair and orderly market requirements on the ATS level, uh, which I think will do two things. One, uh, it'll allow the industry to rebuild its relationship with the retail investor, given what happened in the 2022. Mm-hmm. And also by being licensed under the securities laws, uh, I think you will allow for the next wave of integration and innovation on the institutional side. Because what we've seen historically is that Institutions are sometimes hesitant because of a, uh, a regulatory or compliance risk. And when you think about it, an institution which is licensed under the banking or securities laws, when it sorts of tries to integrate with a crypto exchange, there's, it's apples and oranges. It's two different forms of language there. And essentially, uh, when an institution then tries to integrate with, let's say, something like Prometheum, which is licensed under the securities laws, Essentially, what that allows is basically uh, we're speaking the same language. It's apples to apples. And I think what that will lead is to institutions uh, being much more comfortable participating in the space because it eliminates that regulatory and compliance risk. And if you take it a step further, what that will then do is basically uh, lead to greater adoption, lead to the next wave of innovation, and lead to the integration of sort of distributed ledger technology and uh, blockchains or distributed architectures into market infrastructure, which I think is where a lot of innovation related to the space will occur. Mm, understood. Uh, there's there's obviously a, a bit of controversy um, over the the maybe what what people might view as some form of special treatment um, by the SEC towards your firm and the special purpose broker dealer uh, that you hold. Um, insofar as uh, I believe you're the only firm that has has clinched this, um, what do you make of maybe some of those um, those um, attitudes? Uh, we've heard those attitudes. Uh, they basically uh, don't really understand what how we participate in the space. So when you think about it, the special purpose broker-dealer release comes out in, I believe it's called the Christmas release, in Christmas 2020, because it comes out right around Christmas time. And then there's a comment period. Uh, I believe it's a 60-day comment period. I'm not exact on that. And Prometheum submitted a comment during that comment period. And beyond that, uh, when the rule was adopted into the Federal Register in April 2021, Right? So basically, this is a law now. <laughs> it's, it's in the Federal Register. It's an official law. Uh, Prometheum then spends, I think, the next year creating approximately a 700-page application process. And then another uh, 12 to 15 months thereafter going through the FINRA approval process. Uh, and beyond that, what we were able to do is that as soon as the release came out, this is exactly what we were looking for. Because we were looking to trade digital assets under the securities laws. But if you don't have the ability to clear, settle, and custody those assets, it really doesn't empower the ATS. So in order for our ATS, which is Prometheum ATS, to be empowered, we had to go for the special purpose broker-dealer license through Prometheum Capital. Uh, And what we did is we basically made sure to build our systems and our operations and our procedures, our WSPs, et cetera, uh, and our tech to comply with exactly how the re- regulation laid out how 
uh, special purpose broker dealers would have to operate. So I would say that we've created a circle peg for a circle hole. Whereas basically a lot of the legacy players in the space uh, we're now trying to sort of take a square peg based on sort of Wild West crypto rules and sort of jam it into the circle hole that was uh, the special purpose broker dealer regulation. Uh, so uh, I think by what's actually our approval shows is that if you put your head down, you work hard, you focus on how the regulators have laid out the rules and regulations that you can be compliant. What does it look like in practice? One of the things that uh, I've been somewhat confused by is is the actual implementation of, of a crypto security. And this question kind of came about in the wake of the suits against Binance and Coinbase, where you have a number of assets that the, the agency has deemed as being um, holding the properties of a security, or rather as an unregistered security trading on these brokers or quasi brokers um if you have something that's like a a a an asset like polygon or something um which i think is is something that you guys have said you could trade how how does it sort of fit um within the the sort of federal securities laws as is if you don't have uh, an entity filing an S1 on behalf of, of that asset, how then can you trade it as a, as a crypto security? So with a lot of crypto assets, they it did exempt securities offerings, which is denoted by them filing a Form D, right? So an exempt securities offering is a securities offering, meaning you've offered a security, but it's not done in the full registration process, so it can't be offered publicly. And then under something called Rule 144, you can take a security that's issued in a Reg D offering, which is what's called illiquid. It can't be traded publicly, right? But after it's held for a year and a day, it gains liquidity or it can gain liquidity through 144. And this is one of the ways we've identified on how an asset could be supported on an ATS. So basically, as long as it's trading out in the open market for a certain period of time. So if you think about it, if a company has filed a Form D, it's over a year and a day. In theory, liquidity could be obtained under Rule 144, and then it could be traded publicly on an ATS. And a lot of the top tokens filed Form Ds. Got it. So what's the timeline looking like in terms of the ATS operating and having uh, a number of assets trading on it? What's the sense? So um, first we'll go live with custody at the special purpose broker dealer. And that will happen, uh, I believe, in the next two or three months. Uh, and thereafter, we'll add uh, trading uh, to basically and add assets from that point forward. And usually what you can custody, you could also, in theory, trade. And one thing that needs to be sort of understood when it comes to an ATS versus, let's say, a national securities exchange, because overall what we're seeing is this transition to federally licensed uh, trading platforms, custodians, particularly with the change to the custody rule, you know, the qualified custodian component there. Uh, and basically, um, as we see this transition occur, what I think will happen is that um, 
it'll allow for the larger institutional adoption that I mentioned before, which will also then drive the retail side as well. What do you make of the um, sort of bra between these different market participants and and federal regulators here in the, in the states? How do you think it'll all shake out? And uh, um, I don't know. Do you do you find it funny that you're you're kind of uh, in some ways people might view you as being in the on the bad guys team? it's not really a question of good or bad. It's so binary to think of it as like a black and white or one and zero type situation. I would say the way to look at it is how best do we allow the American public to responsibly participate in the digital asset space? How best do we allow for institutions to properly adopt uh, and integrate into the digital asset space such that the industry can have this, you know, this next wave of growth? And one way that you could do that is through using established frameworks that have existed for you know, uh, since 90 years and built out from there between different regulations and case law. Uh, and I think while what will actually harm the industry is twofold. One, on the sort of the legacy player side, uh, I think that there's, there, you know, there's an argument that regulation is killing innovation, but I think that the legacy players might be killing innovation. Because instead of focusing on how to work within these frameworks after, especially after the paradigm shift of FTX in 2022 to a much more regulated environment, we've seen sort of a reluctance or intransigence or just obstinance when it comes to a lot of the industry players who basically said, we're not going to try to figure out a way to move forward. We're going to draw a line in the sand. We're going to fight public battles. We're going to go through the legal approach. We're going to have regulatory issues. And what ends up happening if you choose that methodology, you have to divert your resources. It's not all of a sudden that, that, that a company all of a sudden gets more resources so they can fight two battles at once very well. No, they take half their resources or a percentage of their resources, and now they're focusing on fighting instead of focusing on moving forward. And I think that's really what's harming the industry and leading to sort of the negative overall context there. And if we've looked what happened since a lot of these sort of uh, public fights have occurred, you know, the, wh who's affected? Now, the companies might be affected, but it's really the investors, the actual owners, the users of these tokens who basically ha aren't really uh, allowed to operate in a system where, you know, everyone's considering how to move forward. They're both focused on how to fight. And I think what some Roman Caesar said that, you know, wars are uh, 10 times more expensive and three times as long as you think. And so instead of moving forward and working and understanding how to work within frameworks, this sort of uh, obstinance and this, you know, legal approach and drawing a line in the sand is arguably killing innovation and harming their users and investors. If it's not a binary um, situation, do you think there is a potential where, let's say, you know, an, an, a number of these assets that, that could, could there be a potential where a number of these assets that, there could be assets, excuse me, that the SEC has deemed are securities and maybe by law are not when you you go through the courts and, and sort of um, dissect the granularities, whilst there could also be a number of assets that Coinbase and Kraken and et al. contend are not securities, but then could actually be. So a number of um, there could be a gray zone is what I'm trying to say. And could there be a potential where 
Um, there are firms like yours that trade the specific cryptocurrencies that have been deemed securities, and then also other platforms that trade the cryptocurrencies that have not, and that are the crypto commodities, as it were. Uh, there's a lot to impact it. First, I don't think it's on any virtual currency exchange or Prometheum. They're not the, the ones who make the determination of whether something's a security or not. Basically, Prometheum determines whether it could support its asset through the ATS and the special purpose broker dealer through a compliance and operational function. And if we could support the asset and trade it under the securities laws, we feel it's a great way to allow the American public to responsibly participate in the space and make sure that they're properly protected. Uh, beyond that, when it comes to a determination through the courts and the SEC, or however that plays out, uh, we will follow whatever guidance comes out. Uh, and it, 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 it's, it goes back to, I think, a larger problem. Uh, you know, some people in the industry think that regulation should be constructed to meet their needs. Regulation should be constructed to meet the investors' needs. Probably. Um, I think that's like definitely fair. Like One thing I would... I've always been curious about um, in terms of like the thinking through the logic is you have a firm like Coinbase that says something to the effect of, um, you know, we don't list securities whilst at the same time they say we do not have regulatory clarity. And I do think it is a bit confusing to, to kind of make both contentions because they, they almost are in opposition of each other. Um, it'd be like saying, uh, I don't, we don't have clarity around what a fruit is while also saying, I don't sell any fruit. Um, none of these, none of this produce is fruit. It's all, they're all vegetables. Um, a weird analogy, but do you get the sort of point I'm trying to make? There was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal yesterday referencing, I believe, how New York's Department of Financial Services is focusing on listing standards for uh, different digital asset instruments. Why are there listing standards if they're not securities? It's a, it's sort of a similar vein of thought. Fair enough. I guess you could say though that these assets can require like different types of standards to list that that don't sort of look at the the security, not necessarily just the security nature of them, but also security or tech tech security in the tech sense of the word. Um, and other aspects like that, decentralization or whatever have you. Sure. And that's that's definitely something that should be considered. But it comes down to a question of it being a financial instrument. It's a financial instrument where, you know, the public is participating. And I would argue that digital assets, the way that the public is encountering them and participating with them, is much closer to an equity than it is to a commodity. Um, so... Uh, the overall question, going back to the larger issue, I think, is, is it's just a question of how investors are best protected. And based on the way that they've interacted with these assets and what we've seen, um, twofold. A, I don't think there's any need to recreate the wheel. We've had laws that have been tried and tested over 90 years that have allowed American financial markets and capital markets to really be uh, maintain its preeminence in the world. And two, when it becomes a larger question of capabilities. You know, there's different there's different ideas. Maybe there should be a, a dual dual uh, you know regulatory regime between the CFTC and the SEC. 
if you're familiar with security-based swaps, which when Dodd-Frank had the same concept, it took 10 years to figure out. So what happens in the decade, the next decade, when there's a determination about who actually regulates it? The investors are still left in a pseudo-protected manner? And also, when you look at the larger question of, uh, I guess, commodity versus security, it comes down to the realities of the capabilities of the different regulators. The SEC and FINRA combined have, you know, uh, 11, 12,000 approximately uh, employees. The NFA and the CFTC combined have 1,000 to 1,200. Equities are a much more retail-based product. There's a lot more experience on the securities regime side in dealing with retail-based products. On the commodity side and the CFTC side, I would argue it's more institutional. So as opposed to like, like dealing with nuances and make people making like technical arguments, let's focus on the realities here, the overall economic realities and the, the larger question of how best to protect the American public, which will allow the industry to actually flourish. So obviously there's this, um, you know, we kind of talked about the, the extent to which different market participants think that there is some form of... <laughs> I don't know if collusion is the right word, but impropriety between the agency and, and the firm in ter- and with respect to the, um, the first of its kind special purpose broker-dealer license. And you had the Blockchain Association calling for an investigation into this approval. Um, what does that look like? Um, what sort of... Um, facts and circumstances could you point to that would suggest that everything is above board? I, I described it sort of earlier in that we were intimately involved with the, when the regulation came out in the sort of comment period and then built systems that were custom to how the regulation was laid out. We basically created specific technology, operations, procedures, uh, compliance mechanisms, et cetera, everything to specifically how the, how the regulation was laid out. And I think maybe others were trying to figure out how to work around the regulation or to make the regulation work for them. Uh, so uh, it's, it's an interesting argument, uh, but one could say just follow the law. How do you see the legislative debates in Congress shaping the future of what this all looks like? We'll have to see how it plays out on the congressional level. Uh, the overall question, I think, again, is how do we best protect the public? How do we create a circumstance or a sort of situation where we allow for that institutional adoption to occur such that there's no regulatory compliance risk, while at the same time making sure that the retail public is properly protected? And our approach is doing it under the securities laws. How do you line up? Um, how do you how do you draw up business? What's the? We talked a bit, um, most of the conversations focused on uh, this this policy debate, the regulatory nuance, but uh, from a business perspective, what's the what's the go to market strategy look like in terms of lining up uh, potential clients? Uh, it'll be very interesting because, as I sort of mentioned before, there was a change to the custody rule when it came to crypto assets, such that crypto assets he- held by an investment advisor or a fund on behalf of clients have to be held and custodied at a qualified custodian. Now, what's a qualified custodian? There's four specific categories. One is a national bank. If you if you ask if you ask one person, you might get three different answers. If you look at the regulation, there's four specific laid out categories, and the second category is a broker dealer. 
And the only broker dealers capable of custodying digital asset securities are special purpose broker dealer, of which Prometheum is at the moment the only one. And beyond that, there's, I think, a category for a futures category and maybe a foreign entity category, both of which I don't believe there are any. I think, though, if you if you if you hold like a trust license, doesn't that that qualify or is that a bit of that's uh, a time will tell question. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think what 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 overall is happening here is we're moving away from this fractionalized regulatory regime. I think that the government has seen the difficulties and potential dangers associated with regulatory arbitrage or jurisdiction shopping. And one way to eliminate that is to have a federal licensing regime. If you have a federal license regime, it's basically uniform. And basically, it's not a question of a race to the bottom where someone races to some state that wants to get crypto business. Aaron, are you... are you trying to say that you don't trust, uh, you don't you don't think that South Dakota is a robust financial services regulatory regime? I, I don't really have any experience or familiarity with that. I do think that. Or is it uh, North Gen- Dakota? I'm just I'm just making I, a joke. I think it was South, and I think it was also <laughs> Wyoming. But essentially, um, the if you think about it, federal licensing, people have different thoughts on it. Overall, I think that. The uniformity of a federal licensing regime will allow there to be a standard and a expected level by which people have to adhere to. And that was, I think, the whole concept behind bringing the idea of bringing crypto assets under the uh, custody rule such that they have to be held at qualified custodians. To be a qualified custodian, you have to meet certain levels, uh, which I think are possibly a higher standard than what has to be met on the state level. So what do the next several months look like for you guys? What are you, what are you most excited about? Um, oh, we'll be uh, going live with custody, uh, adding assets, and then shortly thereafter going live uh, for trading on the ATS. So custody probably before end of year? Sometime right around there. Yeah. Christmas again. It could be another uh, holiday, holiday special when if you, that's when you got your... Um, well, if you believe certain conspiracy theories, we already have the date set, not by us. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you what do you make of? Um, how does it feel to be part of a conspiracy theory? It, it was something that honestly I couldn't have accounted for. You you put your head down and you do what you think is proper and compliant under law, and by what you do, what happens when you do things the right way, people who uh, it's constructed differently. So I did not see it coming. I'm not a social media person. I mm-hmm. did not ever anticipate the, um, I don't know what you would call it, the attention maybe. Um, I do understand that there's been a lot of effort in putting things from one perspective and we have a different perspective. So we understand how that can you know, create some tension. Uh, but the question again is how do we best protect the American public? How do we allow this next wave of institutional adoption to occur? And I think one way to do that is through entities licensed under the federal securities laws. I guess going back to the the framework, right? You, you mentioned um, that I think in a congressional testimony that the um, SEC is the most capable financial markets regulator in the world. I mean, we certainly have the most robust um, capital markets in the world. It's not not really debatable I don't think um, why not the why not the CFTC or some new new type of uh, 
federal agency? Is it sort of a, a matter of, well, this is what we have, so let's let's work with that versus, um, you know, don't break don't break what's not broken. Two things. One, um, to create a new federal agency will take a significant amount of time. And what happens in the half decade to a decade, it comes to come into place. Not just that, you have to train up all those people. You have to, it, it's, it's not a, you know, an easy, clean, clear path. Mm. That is, and I think during, in that time frame, the people who will be left holding the bag are the investors. Now, beyond that, why not the CFTC? Well, I sort of mentioned it before. Mm-hmm. Twofold. One, it's a question uh, between the CFTC and the NFA of the number of employees mm-hmm. uh, and the assets they usually deal with and who those p- the type of investor they usually deal with. And when if we look at it compared to the SEC, I think that the SEC deals with more retail-based products with equities, and they have a much more uh, robust and informed uh, sort of employee base when it comes to dealing with uh retail-based products and understanding the needs of retail-based investors. You know, the, the, the time in which you're sort of going to market is a difficult one for the industry. Um, how do you navigate not so much those regulatory um, questions, which I feel like you've gotten pretty firm grasp on, but just like maybe the lack of volatility or even lack of interest in crypto right now? I think it's twofold. One, um, by operating compliantly under the securities laws and allowing institutions to be comfortable participating in the space, I think that will lead to the next wave of adoption and basically, hopefully, um, increase participation in the industry. Uh, and beyond that, um, I think overall what we're seeing is a sort of a slow but sort of more rapidly occurring snowballing, I guess, migration uh, that will occur from the existing sort of crypto market infrastructure to one regulated and licensed under the federal laws. Well said. Well, sir, thanks so much for taking the time to join the program. Really appreciate you coming on and and chatting with us. Hope you have a great day. Thank you for the opportunity, Frank.